I believe there are many definitions of success, that there's no one right way for success. And so I think it's about finding, I, I consider the successful person as someone who is living their life with integrity, meaning and purpose and living their definition of success, not the definition of success that society bestows on us or tells us is that successful, but one that really rings true to who they are, true to their heart, true to what they stand for as a human. It's one, one thing to be successful, but if it's at the expense of your vitality or health or well-being, that's when I would question your definition of success. So if we're not taking care of ourselves, how can, how can we truly be successful in this world? Hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on the show is to invite the world class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Every Friday I share a newsletter which mentions what I'm learning new, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading and much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website https://slash nishangarg.me n i s h a n t g a r g.me and today's guest is Dr. Jacinta Jimenez. Dr. Jacinta is an award-winning licensed psychologist and board-certified leadership coach with a comprehensive understanding of cutting-edge modalities from the latest research in positive psychology, clinical psychology and motivational psychology. She synthesizes deep knowledge of human behavior and apply it towards the development of technology innovative programs and leaders she has worked with individuals in top organizations in silicon valley and throughout the world she is passionate about building great businesses and products and working with passionate people who value the same her deep knowledge of human behavior and psychological theory makes her an authority in catalyzing positive behavior change within individuals In this episode Dr. Jacinta discusses about her new book The Burnout Fix Overcome Overwhelm Beat Busy and Sustain Success in the New World of Work. She explains the issues of burnout, stress, how to identify burnout, how to recover from it and creating micro moments of replenishment and attaining sustainable success and much much more. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Jacinta Jimenez. Jacinta, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I had been looking forward to this conversation from last 15 months. I'm glad finally we are able to connect. And I want to start with something that I really enjoyed reading about that about your grandmother Mary, the importance of education through empowerment. So she worked as a maid at a roadside hotel and she would write to you so many letters during your education times in your college times and she would send you dollar 5 whenever she would send you letters and I'm curious to ask you what did she write in those letters Oh so such a beautiful place to start because it really is the grounding behind 
so much of who I am and why I do what I do. In the letters, they were always handwritten and beautifully written, even though she only had a you know eighth chance to get to the eighth grade in terms of education. She wrote just beautiful scripts and she would write about just her, it was like unconditional positive regard is what I would put it. There was no pressure to be amazing at what I did or be the top ranks. It was more just about kind of honoring the spirit of what I was trying to do and her belief in me. And then reminding me of the purpose of why she cared so much about this, that that education is a, a pathway to empowering others. So it was pretty profound notes. They weren't very long, but they the content was really powerful. And I still have them all. I still have them. Yeah. <laughs> is she alive? No, she's since passed. But the the moment of seeing, you know, I had her come to my doctoral graduation where they put the hood on you and everything and she was just beaming and so I think that was more of the highlight than getting hooded even was just to see her glowing. And Jacinta, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Santa Cruz, California, which is about two two hours or one and a half hours if there's good traffic south of San Francisco. And it's a beautiful coastal town that has mountains and ocean. I grew up in nature on an apple orchard. So was very much surrounded by nature. It's a very close-knit community as well. So I feel like I was very lucky to have landed in Santa Cruz that has a very progressive mindset and way of thinking as well. While I was reading about you and your work, I found that your parents migrated from Mexico and nobody was having proper education in your family. So how did you get into this education thing where you studied psychology, you have you come from a science background? So how you became so different from other family members in terms of education? Yeah, my father's family, yeah, came from Mexico immigrated and grew up very, very poor, picking crops in the fields and often living in barracks or places without running water or even cars. My dad has several siblings and they all ended up working to pursue education. My dad put himself through college working at night as a janitor. So very much, and then went on to be start kind of an after-school enrichment program, teaching character education and uh, social justice and leadership development. And so that was a big influence on me in realizing just how far he was able to take himself from, you know, with education, how much further I could be that the first generation to, to pursue it, but also seeing how much there was to know about the world and wanting to soak in as much information. So learning has been kind of, you know, between my grandmother pushing education and then my father just talking about, and it was never pushing like you need to be this person or achieve these grades. It was more about knowledge is power. There's freedom and knowledge and education. And so unlocking the opportunities that a great uh, education can bring for someone was kind of what was instilled in me. And my cousins have done amazing things with their education. And even my uncle did incredible things and has written books about our, his, my dad's family, actually, about their, their journey and how education played such a big role in 
He was awarded uh, the Steinbeck Award for his writings about my dad's family, which is pretty amazing as well. So education is a huge, huge weaving of my, my background and about who I am. What was your relationship like with your parents? Really, really great in that it was funny because my parents were also, you know, they did this after school program. So I, they were my teachers too. So it was very interesting in that they were my parents, but they were also teaching me, but it was more about not academic necessarily. This was character education. So it was about how to, you know, work through conflicts with other kids or, you know, how to think creatively or how to run for office as children, like how to do speeches, all of these, how to raise money for social causes, how to have empathy for other children in the world who may not have the privilege that we have. And so a lot of empathy, compassion work for my parents, but in the form of teachers. But the really cool thing about my parents was they would close down the school on, and it was a lot of work for them. I mean, they built it from the ground up. It was a very small school. It wasn't like this huge school and then it grew. So very much entrepreneurs and they would close it. And every summer we would go just for like, for I think a month, we'd go in a RV trailer and go to as many national parks as we could and learn all about the nature and exploring and, you know, no TV and reading. And it was just one of my highlights. So I feel like in school, I was in school and then at home I was in school in some ways, but in a very organic, creative way. So very different than studying, 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 more experiential learning. How old were you when your parents were teaching you about character education? All the way from probably first grade all the way to sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. So like so years and every day, you know, with the other kids calling my mom and dad you know, teacher, you know, and so it was, it was, it was a little strange in that I'm like, okay, well, I'll be referred to my parents as teacher also, because I didn't want to stand out around the other kids. That was the trickiest part, but I got to always be around other children. And so got a lot of social time too, because after school was their work in some ways. So after school, I was just doing more school with them. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> any memorable story from your summertime? Yeah, I think one of the big ones was just learning about other cultures. They would teach a lot about Native American or American Indian culture. And I remember really loving the idea of what certain tribes in, you know, original tribes in, in the Americas stood for and how they connected with nature. And I remember really just getting into just details about how feathers meant certain things and just understanding. And I think it was really profound for me because I started realizing, gosh, there's so much beauty and so many other cultures and having so much respect for how people connected with nature and just diversity and spirituality and, and relate, relating to others. So that kind of opened up my curiosity about other humans and people and cultures and how we relate to the world and others around us. How do you connect with nature now? And what is your relationship with nature these days? Yeah, so nature is like profoundly important to me. Very, very important to me. I used to connect with nature through really high intensity kind of sports. So I grew up in Santa Cruz, so surfing. 
and then later got into rock climbing and then snowboarding and then cycling and kayaking and just like a lot of adventure sports. I hiked Mount Kilimanjaro. In my late 30s, I got sick and had to have several surgeries in a small period of time. And that really took away my ability to commune with nature on that physical level. So it was a really profound experience because I, all those things that I identified with as being like an outdoorsy person, like camping and hiking and were taken away because I didn't have the physical ability to do that anymore. But I found a new connection with nature in terms of just going and sitting with it and watching it, witnessing it, smelling it, you know, using my senses and just feeling <laughs> even more connected to it. And it was really powerful. And I live in California, which has luckily Northern California. We have Yosemite, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And I love John Muir. And he talks about how, you know, just sitting in the valley floor of Yosemite and just watching it, you know, change over time versus kind of meandering through it all, but just sitting and witnessing the variability in just a moment, you know, a place in nature, how much there is to take in. And so it's so important to me. And I try to get my quote unquote nature fix at least two to three times a week. If I don't get that, it's it's tough for me and I'll have to listen to nature sounds or see nature scenes, but it's, it's a part of who I am. I grew up in nature. I was always around nature. Nature is, is fundamentally important to me. It's where I feel connected to things that are bigger than myself. I love nature. So I want to ask you, when you are in nature, what emotions and feelings does it generate inside of you? Yeah, I think the big one is, well, there's, there's three, I'll say the top three, because there's a multitude of emotions that take me forever. <laughs> the third <laughs> one is awe. Just, just how, how, when you look at the, you know, intricacy of a leaf or a flower and just how beautifully designed nature is and the shapes of nature, I just, in uh, awe, or if I, I'm looking up at stars. I just feel awe. The other thing I feel is connection. I feel very much connected to something so much bigger than myself. It, it allows me to step away from self-focus and realize there's such a, a massive world and so much life within it. And it's help. It's helpful. Like, or when I'm in the see the ocean, I just feel so small, and that's really helpful for me in getting out of my small world or mind of self-focus or worry. And then the last thing I think I feel is gratitude that I'm able to have a place where I am able to access beautiful nature and so much gratitude for what nature brings me and feeling very, very lucky that I live in Northern California, which where there is nature that has been preserved and, and, taken care of and, and how important that is for me. So I think those would be the top three emotions that I feel. Thank you for answering me. Do you have any formal gratitude practice to do it on a daily basis or on a weekly basis? Yeah, my gratitude practice, I wouldn't say formal, but one thing I do do is I have this jar and I have note cards by it in a pen. and. Anytime something like that just feels really special or small even, but special, I will take a card and just write on it really quickly and write the date on it and put it in the jar. 
And then also when, before COVID anyway, when friends and family would come over, they would sometimes put things in the jar. I wouldn't know even. And then at least, you know, once a month, I'll open the jar and go through these statements of gratitude. And it's just this really nice moment to to gather, you know, all these data points to remind me of how lucky, you know, the, these beautiful moments during the month were for me. So that's that's my kind of ad hoc gratitude practice that I do. And then it just comes naturally whenever I'm in nature, literally it just happens. So when I go into nature those two to three times a week, I definitely, my gratitude practice comes up to play then as well. That is beautiful. What did you write on the card and put it in the jar last time, if you remember? Yeah, I was grateful for the Better Up coaches. I uh, work at a company called Better Up and I got to help build their coach community alongside a great team, obviously, but I was head of coaching and so got to grow it. And then recently did a, a book club with quite a few of them from all over the world, all over the world. And, and they had read my book and I was just so moved that they had read it and that they felt that it resonated with them. And these are people who are going to help other people. And it just filled my heart. So and I'm so lucky to have connection to that coach community and, and that they're going to pay you know, pay it forward too by sharing the word about burnout and resilience and things with the people they work with. So that that was my last one. <laughs> we will come back to your book, Burnout Fix, <laughs> in a while. And I want to ask you about, I don't know why I keep repeating this statement. I want to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned about your surgery in late 30s. Are you comfortable talking about what happened? Yeah, yeah, I can talk about it because I feel like we should talk about it more. <laughs> so I had um, endometriosis, which is actually quite common, but it's not talked about as much. It happens to women where uterine tissue actually grows outside of the uterus. So I had it growing on organs. So on my, like, for example, on my appendix, and my appendix had to get removed. And it's uh, just will keep growing and you have to, they have to cut it out. And it's a pretty painful and debilitating experience for a lot of women. And I hope, hope it gets talked about more because it really impacts one's life. And especially if you have to have multiple surgeries, which have compounding effects in terms of just vitality, energy, strength, stamina, conditioning, all of those things. So a really intense process. And it's something I did not know about until I was hospitalized for severe pain. And then, you know, they went inside and discovered that it was growing in different parts of my body. I can imagine the appendix surgery because when I was 15, my appendix got removed and it was so painful. And so I can understand your situation, Jacinta. How did you boost your resilience in those times? Yeah, it was a really... Tough time. I'm not going to lie that it wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, thriving during that time either, but I think I was able to stay resilient because of these practices that I, I write about in my book. I really was putting them to the test. Like these are things that I'd honed over time and through research and working with clients, but man, I had to put it to the test and I, and I really, really tried to lean in and practice them. And I think that made a huge difference. I also think you know, I had to step away from my job. It was so, you know, there was so many surgeries in such a condensed time. 
And so it felt like I was losing a lot of control over, you know, my body and, you know, the growth and, and losing activities and I, things that I identified with, you know, which was like, like all the sports I used to do. And so there was a tremendous grieving process, but out of that stillness, you know, where I was kind of rendered to a couch, I was able to find my voice got louder where there was so much, there was no noise of the external world. And I was able to really write the book and have that stillness to write it. And in writing it, it gave me a sense of control because I I didn't know if I was making so much progress with all my surgeries where they were trying really hard, but I kept having to have more and more. And so making progress on, on this book, which feels like a piece of art for me, it was very creative process was hugely empowering. Some people go, why, what? That's crazy. You're sick and you're writing a book. And I'm like, no, this is very therapeutic for me. And it really was because it was a, I was practicing these resilience practices to, you know, keep me optimistic and moving forward and human during this process where I had lost so much of my ability and my ability to work and my ability to do just normal things that we take for granted while also, you know, writing something that could help other people too. So it was a uh, really powerful when I was able to resist the, you know, resist the loss and lean into the kind of stillness, even though it was scary and uh, lonely at times, really powerful for creativity and finding my voice and, and having that stillness to, to write something that was very important and very meaningful for me. Thank you for sharing your story. And at the time, what were your resilient practices that were keeping you sane, so to speak? So my book, I have that, these four capabilities called pulse. It's like, about it's about keeping your personal pulse. Like, just like we have a physical pulse, we keep our personal pulse. That, that's our vibrancy, our vitality, our well-being, our spirit, our health, right? Strong. And so I would, I would practice like the the first, the P is pace for performance. I would literally, you know, it's about doing things little by little and learning through deliberate practice. So yeah, taking on writing a book when you're sick or having surgeries is a lot. So I would just, and luckily I had a great editor and publisher and they would allow me to do little tiny bits and little by little, little becomes a lot. And I became more efficient and quicker at writing the book by following deliberate practice. The U is undo untidy thinking. And that was a big one of just, you know, choosing curiosity over concern. You know, it's really easy when things are looking bleak to catastrophize or I'm going to always be this way or I'm going to always be on this this couch and, you know, there goes my job. It's, it could be easy to downward spiral. But instead of also trying to do toxic positivity, like I just have to will myself to feel happy, you know, <laughs> finding the middle ground of just getting curious. But what if there's another thing? Or what if there's this? And sitting with that kind of curiosity allows allowed me to have a little bit more flexibility and not go any one direction because I really didn't know. And sitting with facts versus letting, letting my magical thinking or thinking errors kind of overtake me. And then the L like was leveraging leisure and things that replenish and those were taken away. But I was able to realize through researching for my book that I could still get nature by watching nature scenes. I could still get that nature. The research shows you could still have physiological stress reduction from just listening to nature sounds or watching nature scenes. So 
I didn't have to necessarily go out and venture in nature. And so finding new ways to replenish myself and fill filming and the SS Secure Support, which asking for help and feeling okay to ask for help. I'm a very self-sufficient person, but when you aren't able to do things like the way you used to because you're not, you know, you're, you're just, you have a chronic illness that it's hard for me to ask for support. But as I did, I built these beautiful relationships and leaned into more vulnerability. And then the E is evaluate effort. So understanding that meaning and purpose and guiding principles matter so much and that the effort that I was putting in this book was tied to that. So even when the book did get tough at times, I was able to zoom out and go, this is for something really important that hopefully will help people. And so I really did. (laughs) These things really did help me get through probably the hardest time in my life. Who was your support system during writing your book and during surgery times? Yeah, I think I, I had, so something I talk about in my book is for the S is, is just network breath, like to have close ties and weak ties and, and a variety of ties. So it was varied. I mean, I had definitely my family was a big support. I'm lucky enough to have family nearby and family that is supportive. But I also have um, a strong group of professional women that we talk a lot and support one another who were constantly checking in on me constantly. It was during Towards the end, when the book launcher was, or right before, when I submitted my manuscript, was still when COVID was happening. And they did like a virtual surprise thing for me and and celebrated milestones with me and would send stuff because I couldn't see them, right? So they would send gifts and, and I'd be surprised and then they would surprise me. Just, it was really wonderful. And then I had other friends who would bring food over. So and then I think even the physicians and nurses, when you, you're in surgery that many times, you get to know the team for better or for worse. And there's just, a, and I didn't know them well, but it was the weak ties still that really meant a lot. And, you know, I, I love that there's research from Barbara Fredrickson about this concept of positivity resonance that you can feel deep connections with people in those, their micro moments of deep connection with people that you don't know as much. And those are just as important research is found as these strong ties and that if we can have both weak and strong ties. So those people that you see your barista at your local coffee shop, they, those play a role in making you feel connected. And I think if I didn't have both the weak and strong ties, it would have been a very, very different experience for me. Absolutely. I understand the sense of connection. Yesterday, I was attending a book launch party of Scott Shute, who is the head of mindfulness and compassion at LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody in that Zoom call and it felt a sense of connection and we built connection with others. Yeah. Yeah. It can just, these micro moments of positivity resonance are so important and they add up. They add up over time and can accumulate to make you feel more and more connected that we don't have to have these. We, it's nice to have those deeper connections too, but we sometimes over-index on that and, and miss out on these really, really delightful little encounters with, with humans that, that realize, you know, we're, we're not all too different. We are not. Your friends were bringing favorite food to you. So what is your favorite food, Jacinta? Oh man, that's a tough one. I like a lot of different foods. I would say I definitely like seafood. So anything like fish, shrimp, those types of things. I I just I I guess maybe because I grew up by the ocean. I'm not quite sure why. So it's it feels familiar. You know, Santa Cruz is right on the ocean. So anything that oceans feel or smell 
always resonates with me. But then they would also bring over beautiful vegetables from their gardens. And I love vegetables as well. So, and especially coming from their home meant so much and was so special as well. I thought you would say Mexican or Tex-Mex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just my grandmother. So when she's passed, but my, my nana, her, her Mexican food, I love. Yes. I was scrolling your Twitter Twitter post and I saw many of your quotes. What are your favorite quotes that you might enjoy in your life? So one of my favorite quotes that I hold on to a lot, and I think this has served me very well, is a Zen proverb that says, let go or be dragged is really beautiful and that there's choice in our response in a lot of ways and that Sometimes if we hold on to outcomes, like my whole career, I would never have thought I would end up in tech. I never thought I would end up writing a book about burnout. Like I didn't know these things. But so instead of holding on to outcomes, I held more closely on to my enduring principles and my values and, and then having, you know, a, an idea of what I wanted to do, but not call it emergent strategy in some ways, where I was open to possibilities of other things. And so when things did not work out for me, trying to, and things I thought I wanted, many times it was a blessing in disguise. And so I, I like to use that. I like to hold on to that Zen proverb of just letting go. So you're not just being dragged. I have a follow-up question on this, on letting go and not be dragged. Could you, do you remember any instance from your life when you really wanted something and it didn't work out? So you had to work hard on letting go. Yeah, gosh, number of them. I think a big one is, so I, when I never thought I'd be a psychologist, I thought I was going to be a dancer. <laughs> if you'd asked me at, <laughs> at 17, what are you, what are you going to be? You're going to, or told me you're going to be a psychologist. You're going to write a book. You're going to work at this really cool tech company and you're going to be executive. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like no idea Thought I was going to be a dancer, but I danced pretty intensely studying Graham technique Two former soloists under Martha Graham, who's considered the godmother of modern dance. It was such an honor to dance with them. I studied for at the, at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater summer intensive program, lived in New York to, to dance and was loving it, but um, ended up having injury after injury after injury, broken jaw, concussions, just it's, it's tough. And I didn't know my limits either. I was very young and naive and didn't really know about pacing myself and all these things that I write about in my book now, basically burned myself out and just was so heartbroken over, over it. And it was something that I had to let go of, but, or else I was just going to stay in this kind of really grief place. So that was a big thing to walk away from a big, I mean, it was a huge, huge piece of my identity, but in doing so, I was able to walk towards something else. And that was psychology and studying, you know, my first class at Stanford was psychology of, of the sport and performing arts with Hans Steiner and opened my eyes up to something that I'm incredibly passionate about and love what I do. So yeah, and walking away, I was able to walk towards something pretty powerful for me. Have you read or heard of the book called The Drama of the Gifted Child? 
Yes. Yeah. I've, I know of that book. It's a very deep book. I've never been able to complete that book. And that book says that people who want to become therapists or psychologists, they want to help others more than they want to help themselves because they have a deep desire to help everybody and not considering their own needs. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I, in some ways, I think I think any helping profession, which is ironically the professions that are most prone to burnout, it's easy. It's easy when you when you care so much about helping others to forget about the importance of of taking care of oneself. When ironically, the biggest tool we have to help others is ourselves, and if we fail to invest in that tool, we we can damage the very thing we need to make an impact and help others. But I think it's so easy to forget out of the desire to help. And so it can become, I think, if not monitored closely, a strength in excess. But also there's conditions, I think, also that set up helping professions, I should say, that that don't also protect these people who are trying to do good work. So, you know, setting up an environment or working conditions that are conducive to replenishment as well. So I think it's a two-way street. I wouldn't put it all in the person. I would say there's there's the system that they work in and the greater societal norms about these different professions and how much they should give and all of those all of those layers kind of add up to easy to neglect the self. Yes, absolutely. And in the preparation of this conversation, I was reading Something about your brother when your brother was in hospital mm-hmm. and you were taking care of the whole situation and not sleeping well, and that was causing you to burn out. Could you share some of the things from that story, if you don't mind? Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, I was in a height of self-focus. That's the other thing I've, I've learned over time. That's something I talk about in the secure support section of my book is, is uh, stepping away from the self-focus. And I was working on my doctoral dissertation and I had the chief of adult psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine as my dissertation chair. And I was feeling the pressure of just getting it right and also feeling a lot of imposter syndrome. And uh, I get a call from my mom and she's like, your brother is you know, he's really sick, his heart's failing. And uh, he had had an infection and ended up, you know, having to have open heart surgery and didn't, wasn't close to almost not making it, you know, and uh, a huge recovery process. And my parents were running their school, which I talked about. And so they couldn't stop working because if they did, they wouldn't have any income and there's medical bills piling up. And so I really stepped up to try to be the superhero for my parents and family. And so I was trying to help manage my brother's care, which is a lot of moving parts like insurance and rehabilitation and just a lot of things, coordination of care while still trying to do, you know, full on doctoral dissertation and and what we call practicum, which is kind of clinical rotations. And it was just so much. And over time I was doing okay. I tried to work harder and that kind of Back, worked for a little bit and then it kind of backfired. And then I'm like, oh, well, I just need to work smarter. So I tried productivity hacks and and cut down on all these social time and leisure time. And just, you know, I could just maximize productivity. And then that didn't work. And, and that's when I really had to step back and I had to actually drop out of a renowned psychiatrist, David Burns's lab. 
And luckily I was able to catch burnout faster that time around, but I had to, it took me a while to dig my way out of it. But it was a really incredible learning process for me in terms of realizing the power of, it's not just about hard work or smart work. You also need to invest in personal resilience practices and these self-care practices so you can maintain your vitality and sustain your success over time. And so that, that was kind of the start of me really caring about how do we boost resilience to allow ourselves to buffer against burnout and our wild, ever-changing new world of work where things are complicated and volatile and uncertain and complex. And life is that way too. So how do we protect ourselves in the best way possible using the best in science? Thank you for sharing. What is the difference between stress and burnout? Burnout is conceptualized. So it, was, it was recognized recently in May 2019 in the World Health Organization as an occupational syndrome resulting from work chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. So I think the difference between burnout and stress is that burnout is this prolonged stress that has not been managed and it's tied to the context of work in spe- specifically. And then what's interesting is burnout manifests itself in like these three core components. So exhaustion, where you feel immense emotional, physical, or cognitive fatigue, cynicism, where you feel low levels of job engagement, and inefficacy, which is a lack of productivity and feelings of incompetence. And when these three elements come together, due to chronic stress that has not been successfully managed or mismatch between the nature of a person or nature of work, that's where the stress arises from. That's where burnout happens. So it's, it's pretty complex. A lot of people think burnout is just from overworking to the point of exhaustion, but really what research has found, especially the incredible research of Christina Maslach, that there's these six mismatches that lead to the stress so overwork may be one of the causes of the mismatch, but there's also other causes that, that can cause someone prolonged stress. That, that, and if it's not identified and managed, then it can lead to burnout. Could you describe some of the mismatches? Yeah. So the obvious one that I talked about is workload, right? Too much work with you know, too little time and resources. But there's other not so obvious ones, like so a conflict in values. If your organization or your boss is telling you to do something or you're working on a work stream that doesn't align with your values, that will take a toll on your, what I call in my book, your personal pulse, your vitality. You know, doing something that doesn't feel aligned with what you stand for, ouch, even if you're not overworking, right? That's going to cause problems or prolonged stress. Fairness is another one. So if, if it feels like the policies and procedures at your work are not fair, or like, let's say promotion policies, or your boss buys into the motherhood penalty, what we call it, where people assume that mothers are less invested in their work because they have children. And hmm. that can take a toll too, right? And, and cause stress. Uh, other one is lack of reward. And this can be financial, social, or intrinsic reward. You know, where you're you're working really hard and you don't feel like the reward matches up with the effort that you're putting in. And again, this can be social as well. That will take us that will cause stress. And then a, a big one that people don't associate with prolonged stress tied to the workplace is social support. We spend so much of our waking lives at work, so much of our time at work. And if we don't feel like we belong or we're included 
or if we're in a caustic work environment or we don't have anyone to, you know, to confide in, that can create chronic stress or that mismatch. And then the last one is control. So if you are micromanaged or you have little control, that will create what we call learned helplessness, where it's like, why even try if I can't even control my environment? And that's incredibly stressful. We want to feel certainty. We like to feel control. And so to not have control is very stressful for us as humans in general. So it can come from a lot of different places, that that chronic stress that has not been successfully managed. And in your book, you talk about that burnout is not always the thing with individuals. It could be with organizations and companies. We cannot blame individuals all the time. Yes, we have to take personal responsibility, but there are other factors that you're describing. Absolutely, yeah. That's the thing I want to say. I'm like, this pulse five core capabilities, they're important because it it gives you the individual power to build out capabilities to help buffer. But it's only one half of the story. Workplaces also have to invest in setting up work streams and, and, and managers and people leaders need to also invest in setting up conditions that guard against those six mismatches as much as possible. And when it's done on both sides, the individual level and the team and organizational level, that's when the magic can happen. So it has to have a multi-system approach. It's really, really important. Yes. And I want to double click on two things here because I personally feel aligned with that kind of burnout mm-hmm. in my life. So one is that if I am being asked to work on something and I hate that work, I don't want to put my learning into that thing that causes me stressed or burnout. I know that there are times or many a times we have to do work that you may not enjoy, but mm-hmm. if that process is keep going on for a long time, that will cause me stress because deep down internally, I know that I do not want to work on this thing. Yes. And I've been asked to work on this thing because I'm not living that work. I'm not enjoying it work. And I do not have the accountability or the power to delegate that to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And second is exhaustion. And sometimes I will, I manage my stress. I am very resilient. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. But sometimes there is, there is nothing wrong in life. And it just, there is no emotional, mental energy to put in the work and there is mm-hmm. no motivation. So Jacinda, do you ever feel that you don't have the motivation to put in the work on certain days? I think the hard part is, is that I I really hope that the, the silver lining of COVID is that people are realizing how significant resilience and well-being are towards doing great work. That when we are emotionally exhausted or psychologically taxed, we just aren't going to be able to be as productive or do as good work. And so just like we monitor things that are very important, we, you know, I wear a smartwatch, track my steps. If you had a heart condition, you check your blood pressure. We, you know, I really think that we would be all better off if we were tracking our well-being on a consistent basis. And so we can catch when we start feeling little levels of exhaustion and go, oh my gosh, I have to do something to replenish myself, you know? And, and I really believe in micro moments of replenishment that these, we shouldn't wait till vacation, that we can do these things on a consistent and persistent basis and small doses, but done over time, again, consistent and persistently, because little by little, those little things add up to a lot. And they're also much more doable. 
So something I say to people is like, when you stress and you stress your nervous system, just find moments to rest, to counterbalance it. And if we keep that balance in place, we won't find ourselves in that throes of exhaustion. And if we do find ourselves exhausted, what can we do to replenish ourselves, even small doses at a time to leave us a little bit more fulfilled? Because it's pretty tough once, once we get to the point where we are psychologically taxed over time because of stress that wasn't counterbalanced. That's when, when, when we get into like the danger zone in terms of getting closer to conditions for burnout or just not feeling effective on the job. For me, personally, it is sleep and taking lots and lots of naps. So, Jacinta, what are your personal micro moment of replenishment? Yeah, so mine is, surprise, going out in nature. So, when I do, so I do a lot of talks for my book. And after every talk, I know my nervous system has been activated in the talk. I'm not stressed, but your nervous system does, is stressed because I'm excited. I'm I'm eager to share my knowledge and share about this book. And, and so, but I know, you know, your nervous system doesn't know the difference between if you're happy, mad, angry, pumped up, excited. It just knows, whoa, you're, you're, you have a nervous system like or physiological arousal. So to, in order to allow my nervous system to get back to a more calm state to counterbalance the stress. So I, I'll go outside five minutes. That's it. You know, but I live in San Francisco. I, I'm like to live by the bay. So I'll go out and watch the seagulls, smell the sea air and breathe and let my body and my nervous system, I mean, calm down and know, okay, the stress is over. And then I'll restart my work. And then maybe I'll go through another meeting that's a little bit stressful and I'll go, okay, let me stop. And I'll do some uh, coherent breathing, which is uh, really, really powerful. And, and that it's just slowing down your breathing to about six breaths a minute. And what that can essentially do is hack your nervous system to turn down that fight or flight response, which we call our, our um, sympathetic nervous system and turn up the power of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is tied to rest and digest. And then maybe throughout the day, something else and I'll, and I'll, I'll counterbalance it with another micro thing, like a gratitude, writing the gratitude piece. And so I'm looking for opportunities throughout my day when I feel stressed that I counterbalance it with replenishment. And so I have this mantra that I say to my clients, when you stress, you must rest. And it's just done on these micro doses, but just like my little gratitude jar, right? Those little, those, those things add up over the month. And there's, there's a beautiful loads of memories and things that I feel grateful for that add up. And it's the same thing, you know, with our resilience, we add more and more to, I call it your metaphorical piggy bank. And then when a stressor happens, you could take some out of the piggy bank and you still have some, some reserves in the tank so that you don't break the bank when adversity hits. And that's kind of how I think about building out a buffer for burnout. <laughs> if I heard you correctly, you mentioned six breathing per minute. So what is the breathing pattern you follow? Six, six, six. Yeah. Just slowing it down. So it's like, call it like box breathing almost like, yeah, exactly. Just, just slowing it down to, which is much slower than our normal respiratory rate. And then I usually do it through the nodes. Just that, just even, even for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, just allows your body to slow down and get more oxygen and pause. And it's, again, it's just not big things, but it's the little things done over time that add up to to bigger changes. Is there any place for meditation in your life? 
Yes, I definitely love meditation. And in the mornings, I will sit and do my my meditation. And I um, am a big proponent of loving kindness meditation. It has powerful effects in leaving you feeling more connected to people. And, and throughout COVID and being disconnected, you know, because of quarantine, I think my loving kindness meditation has been such a powerful resilience practice for me. And what it basically is, is, you know, first starting with yourself and, and it's this mantra where you hold yourself and it's very compassionate with yourself. And you say, may you be safe. May you be peaceful. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. And then you hold another person in your mind or people in your mind that you love or you know, or maybe you don't even know that well. And you focus on them and you send them those same messages and you repeat it. And then the third step is to think of you and them. And you say, may we be healthy. May we be happy. May we be safe. May we live with ease. And what it allows us to do is we're taking care of ourselves and we're taking care of others or we're sending good intentions for others. But then we're zooming out to this shared common humanity that all of us in some ways are trying to heal. All of us are trying to navigate this wild world of life, a wild world and wild thing that's called life. And it's just so beautiful and able to realize, uh, get out again of our self-focus and, and realize that all of us at some point are, are just trying to be humans. Do you ever or did you ever find challenge in practicing self-compassion? Yes. Self-compassion has not come easy for me. As someone who was kind of raised with thinking, oh, a healthy dose of criticism is a good motivator, right? (laughs) Yeah. Why, you know, why be so nice? You're giving yourself like a, you know, pity card or something. But, you know, as I, as I've seen with the rigorous amounts of research by Christian Neff, self-compassion is so, so, so powerful. And I, I think what I love about it most is it's not even that hard. It's just how it, how would you treat a friend or someone you loved? And what would you say to them? And, and just being so caring towards oneself. And I love the benefit that, you know, you can always be compassionate with yourself. But if I think it's, it has all the upsides, the research has found it has all the upsides of self-esteem without the downsides of self-esteem, because a lot of times self-esteem is built on social comparison, especially downward comparison, where you're like, well, at least I'm not like that person. Look at how good I'm doing in the world. Look at me, what I've accomplished. But at the times when we need self-esteem the most, when we're hurting the most, or we're not flourishing in our lives, it's hard to make those downward comparisons. Whereas with compassion, we always have ability to treat ourselves kindly and with love. And it sounds so soft, but the, the research shows how many physiological and psychological benefits it can bring. Yes. And during the times of practicing self-compassion, we don't have to worry about the productivity and all these hacks. Exactly. Just be relaxed. Exactly. And, and, and not worrying about caring about what others think, you know, that, that comparative suffering even. That's so easy to fall into and just being with yourself and uh, so much more to work with there. You actually remind me of a quote from Jack Cornfield. If your compassion does not include yourself, it is incomplete. <laughs> oh, I love that. And that's completely right. And that's why I love that loving kindness meditation, because it starts with the self first, you know, making sure that you're, you're taking care of yourself. Then you focus on the others. Then you focus on everyone. So it's a really nice 
easy to do. And I always feel so peaceful and, and connected afterwards. And the research shows that it, it actually, you know, like a total of one hour a week of practice can lead, can help with feelings of loneliness or disconnection, which, which is a problem right now. People are feeling increasingly lonely. It's an epidemic in itself. And it's also one of those mismatches that I talked about that can lead to burnout. Yes. And you have talked about sustainable success in your work. I've read that many, many times that you're talking about sustainable success. So when you think about successful, who is that person that comes to your mind and why? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So I believe there are many definitions of success, that there's no one right way for success. And so I think it's about finding... I. I consider the successful person as someone who is living their life with integrity, meaning and purpose and living their definition of success, not the definition of success that society bestows on us or tells us is that successful, but one that really rings true to who they are, true to their heart, true to what they stand for as a human. It's one, one thing to be successful, but if it's at the expense of your vitality or health or well-being, that's when I would question your definition of success. So if we're not taking care of ourselves, how can, how can we truly be successful in this world? Yes. And actually, I think about it a lot of time because I used, to, I used to think that success is all about making money. And now I think more and more that for me, success is feeling unrushed and feeling relaxed. Beautiful. That is success to me. That's so beautiful. And I think... Also, definitions of success can change with our, the seasons of our lives, too. If you have a family or something else happens and you get sick, you know, wh- how does that change and how do you shift that? And so instead of trying to, you know, form ourselves or shape ourselves into these boxes of what we're told success looks like, creating these. I love I love your definition of success. Yeah. creating Life changes. Yeah. Life changes. And three days ago, I got a phone call from my family that your mom has COVID. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So life changes. You have to practice resilience in all these times. So it's, it's like you have you have studied so many things and universe or God is going to give you some test mm-hmm. to practice those learnings. Yes, I got <laughs> tested for sure. I was tested. Yeah. Yes. Is there any person that comes to mind who you think is successful according to you and according to your definition? One person I just admire that I talk about a lot because I just thought this one story, I mean, I think everyone kind of looks up to this person and the Dalai Lama I just admire. And it's because one time I was lucky enough to hear him speak and thought it was going to be a really serious, intense moment. We're going to talk about like life-changing world thing, you know, pressing matters in the world. And we sat down and started it off with a meditation and, and, uh, you know, I was focusing on my intention and, and my breathing. And then towards the end, there was this like beautiful effervescent giggle that rang out through the auditorium. And I caught myself judging like, who, who laughs meditating with the Dalai Lama? And I was like, oh my God, non-judgment, bring your, you know. And then they had us open our eyes right after. And it was actually the Dalai Lama laugh. And he had the most beautiful smile on his face. And I was so taken aback. And instead of saying some somber prayer, some deep words of wisdom, he actually made a joke about himself. 
And he joked about having jet lag and almost falling asleep during the meditation. And I was so taken aback. Like, here's this person, probably the wisest and most stressed, could be potentially most stressed of all of us with the most serious work of all of us. And he is able to live with his humanity and his humility and, and laughter and lightness while still doing incredibly important work and making an impact on the world. And that's the message I try to send from with my work and my book is that serious work in a serious time does not come at odds with rest, humanity, humility, all of these things. Because when we are more, we have more peace in ourselves and more centeredness in ourselves and we feel more resilient. We actually show up better to everything we do. We're, we do better work. We're more compassionate. We're more creative. We're more innovative. And in the end, our communities, our work, our customers, our employees, our direct reports, our teams, everyone benefits. And so I think that that is success when you are able to do serious work, but still have that lightness and that humanity alongside it. Thank you so much for sharing everything. I wish we had more time to go more deeper into this conversation. And Jacinta, I want to ask you, is there anything that you want to explore before we wrap up our conversation? Anything you want to share with us? I think the big thing is that last message about hard work and smart work, like productivity hacks are only part of the picture. And that to be able to do great work in this new world of work that is ever changing and complex and ambiguous, that we cannot underestimate the power of just investing in our own personal resilience and well-being and what I call in my book, their personal pulse practices. Great. And where can we find about your book and about your work? Anything? Yeah, you can find me at LinkedIn. I post a lot of content there. And then also theburnoutfix.com, which is the name of the book. And you can find more about the book. It's available in stores and Amazon worldwide. I will put all the all the links in the show notes at the link nishangurg.me slash podcast. And uh, last but not the least, is there anything else I should have asked you and I didn't ask you? No, I think you did a great job at asking me the key things. And I, I love the personal questions. So yeah, I love where we left off. Thank you so much. And you are part of my gratitude today. I wish I had a jar, but I'm <laughs> imagining a jar next to me and putting a card in that. <laughs> yeah. Likewise, I think you'll be my, my gratitude card for for today as well. Um, this was such a joy and a pleasure. Thank you so much for having this amazing conversation. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangurg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again